Man, I am so glad to be here. Uh, this is exciting for me. And um, man, it's been a long time. I think a global pandemic and combined with, um, you know, my transitioning out of the lead pastor role, just it makes it feel twice as long as it, as it really is. But um, I'm just happy to be here and, and excited about this opportunity. And I love the, the topic of the series that you've been going through church words. And, you know, we have words like redeemed and sanctified and glorified, and, and they might have great significance to many of us here as believers and be meaningless to others. And um, I think it's kind of funny how Christians have a tendency to use words in conversation that make little sense to us, actually, and especially the people we're talking to. So uh, it's a great series. I'm using a word that you hear in church or about church a lot, going a little bit different direction. And the word I want to talk about is hypocrite. I want to talk about hypocrites, hypocrisy. And unfortunately, out there in society, when people think about Christianity or the church, that word comes up, a hypocrite. And a hypocrite, by definition, is a person who pretends to have virtues moral or religious values that they do not actually possess. To take it further, a destructive behavior that we hide so that we can keep up a totally different reputation is hypocrisy. And when you look back at the origins of this word, there, it, it, some of it, the foundation is in the Greek, and, and hypocrite was not a negative word. It was actually used for actors. And so they're like, oh, yeah, hypocrites, they're the ones that you see down in the city uh, center, and they hold a mask up in front of their face, and they play a character, and they act like somebody they're not. Hypocrites. And then it's evolved over the time to describe flaws that human beings have. So I want to talk to you about that because uh, most people view Christians or many people, I don't mean most, but many people view Christians, church attenders, religious people as hypocritical. And when someone is exposed who is a leader or somebody that we know that has had some kind of uh, double standard in their life. It's demoralizing to you and I as believers, especially if you have some kind of connection or knowledge of them or know them. Hypocrisy in the church is a problem that we must deal with. Genuine hypocrisy involves character issues that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work on and to do the work ourselves. And here's what I want to say throughout this, and I'll repeat this in different ways, but there is hypocrisy in the church. There is hypocrisy in society. There is hypocrisy in who and how we love. And hypocrisy has been confused with people's brokenness. So I want to try to address some of these and bring this together. But, um, you know, not being a hypocrite doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes and that we don't fail or struggle, don't always live up to what we believe. That's called humanity. That's all human beings. All of us fall short. We've all said things that we wish we wouldn't have said. We've all done things that we wish we wouldn't have done. 
And so here, what's important for us to recognize as believers, having an ideal or values that we endeavor to live by is a great thing. And if we struggle with it and we miss the mark, that's not hypocrisy. That's aiming toward the value and aiming toward the goal and moving toward that. The Apostle Paul writes about the same thing. He's the most influential leader in the New Testament church, and he describes this dynamic in his own life in Romans chapter 7. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Anybody know what that's like? Anybody know someone else that it reminds you of? No, 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 not that. He goes on to say in verse 18, I love God's law with all of my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. And so this is a part where Somebody without understanding of this dynamic might look on out from the outside in and say, oh, a hypocrite. But you and I have to realize this is part of the journey of growth. We're not saying, hey, look at us. We're perfect. We're saying, hey, we have discovered a savior. We have discovered a way that we're willing to lay our life down and pursue and, and ask God to help us grow. And we're not there yet, but we're on our way. We're in the process. I'm not who I want to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. <laughs> I didn't even plan that one. That just came out of the past. I've heard somebody say that many times. I don't know. So recently, I watched this HBO documentary on Tiger Woods. Tiger is the greatest golfer who ever played the game. I'm not a golfer. I've played golf. That's how I know I'm not a golfer. <laughs> it gets way too frustrating for me. I can get frustration for free. I don't have to pay green fees <laughs> to get frustrated. So anyway, but it's fun to hang out with people who play golf. But anyway, I, I love to learn about athletes like Tiger Woods, and I love what he's done. I've, I've, I've admired his ability to play golf. So he was a phenomenon and is. I like Tiger. He was on course to become the first billionaire athlete. Forbes magazine called him a marketing dream. Tiger Woods was an inspiration to people all around the world and a role model to our youth. And this documentary goes into Tiger's career and his life beyond the golf course. It talks about his competitiveness, his talent, his complicated relationship with his dad, and it, it begins to talk about how expectations were set so high in his life. One writer wrote this. It deprived him of, it deprived the future champion of some of life's oxygen. Let that settle in. There was so much expectation and pressure. It, it cost him some of life's oxygen. Interesting perspective. The documentary covers his ability to compartmentalize areas of his life. It was a strength that became both the source of his success and the source of his downfall. He could shut out all distractions, media, crowds, noise, pain. 
Some people called him the machine. Like he'd go out there and play golf, and no matter what was happening, the weather, the people, he would just methodically hit that ball, be right on the green, putt, make it in. He was like a machine. He, He always went. And then this guy, he played through back injuries, back surgeries, and even won the U.S. Open on a broken leg. That's how much he can compartmentalize and shut things out. Now, Nike ran an ad once with a picture of Tiger on the golf course, and it says, winning takes care of everything. But they were wrong. That's not true. This story includes the decline of his game, the affairs that ended his marriage and scandals that uh, evolved, and it destroyed his reputation as a role model. Two of the women who were intimately involved in his life said that that when he was with them, he knew he could be himself and there was no judgment, no pressure to live up to all these expectations. An interesting comment that all of this is being shut out on some level, but not fully. If all of a sudden now I feel safe, I don't have these expectations, this pressure. So in 2017, he was arrested, and, and there's video footage that many of us have seen of uh, police pulling him over and seeing him uh, uh, under the influence of pain medication and a mugshot that just looks like void of life, you know. And here's this great athlete, a great man, and going through this just imploding in front of us. They asked him in an interview, how could, quote, Mr. Control, the master of control, gets so out of control. And here's what he said. I started going against my core values. Interesting. He was wrestling with so much pain, so much emotional and physical pain. And Tiger's come back in 2019 when he won the Masters is covered. And it's even more impactful when you realize how far he had fallen and what he had been through to get to this place. Now, the reason I'm bringing up Tiger Woods, I'm not calling him a hypocrite. Make sure you write that down and tell somebody. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. Unaddressed brokenness causes people to make destructive decisions. Unaddressed brokenness causes people to make destructive decisions. Even our heroes. Even our heroes of the faith. That things look one way on the outside, but there's something else going on on the inside. And when we first see it or we first experience it, we go, oh, hypocritical or, oh, he's somebody different than we thought. So when we see a leader collapse or implode or be exposed, then maybe there's something more going on than we see. There is hypocrisy in the church. There is hypocrisy in society. There is hypocrisy in how and who we love. And hypocrisy has been confused with people's brokenness. In our world today, we are so hypocritical. We are so used to hypocrisy. Uh, Behavior and rhetoric with politicians and entertainers and leaders, it seems acceptable to us. It's like we get desensitized to hypocrisy outside the church. We're very sensitive to it inside. But outside, it goes on like it's normal. 
But it's important for us to recognize the human condition that we face. And while someone who's been critical of the Christian faith points to a moral failure, rightfully so, in the life of a Christian or somebody that's is an example to them of Christianity, they might go, see, the church is full of hypocrites. And it's true. There are hypocrites in the church. But I have to say, just like in restaurants and gyms and school and work environment and Washington, D.C., there are hypocrites because human beings are involved. So when I was fully a lead pastor and I'd hear that, I would, my sarcasm that I have to repent of would go on in the back of my head and I would go, yeah, so there's always room for one more. Come on in, you know. (laughs) But sometimes what we might call hypocritical or we get in that, it's really just the inconsistencies of life. We have to look at ourselves with a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, it's like somebody going to order food and they have fast food and they go, they want a double hamburger and large fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> so I'm thinking, why the Diet Coke? Why not just go for the real thing, man? Because you've already killed it with the rest of your order. <laughs> it's like preparing a sermon on how to be led by the Holy Spirit, but you forget to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you prepare the sermon. <laughs> That's what I've heard about. (laughs) And come on, we're living in this epidemic, this pandemic with the mask and the coronavirus and social distancing. And listen, I know the virus is real. I had it. I believe we're in a pandemic for sure. And I believe we got to be safe and be wise with masks. But come on, there's some silly stuff going on. You look at it and go, this doesn't make sense. It's like I went on an airplane. You had to stand six feet apart, each other, as you're boarding the plane. And then we all sat next to each other this close (laughs) throughout the whole plane. And so I I get it. You know, I believe in being safe. But part of my mind is just like going, this just doesn't make sense. (laughs) Like, if the mask keeps you safe, why are we standing six feet apart? And if we're standing six feet apart and that's safe, why are we wearing the mask? You know, so all that stuff kind of goes through your head. I went to a restaurant in another state. And so you had to have a mask on to come in. So I come in, but then you go down and you sit at the table and you take your mask off and you can order. And so I made the order. And then I remembered there was a hand sanitizer pump at the front. So I think, well, I'm going to go do that after I held the menus. So I went over, and then they wouldn't let me do it because I had to go back to my seat and get my mask and come back and do the hand sanitizer and back. And and I did it because I'm a nice guy. (laughs) But I have to say, I was smiling a little bit in my head. Like, you know, we got to do our best, but I just don't know if it makes full sense, all the things that we're doing. We're talking here on Palm Sunday, and there's a story in the New Testament about Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people, the crowds are crying, Hosanna. They're just not singing a song. They're singing Hosanna to the highest. They're singing praises to the Messiah. The crowds are worshiping Jesus. And they're just like, get a photo of him. Look at, there he is. Get one with me, with the donkey in the background. I mean, there is, this is a full-on Hosanna. 
but hundreds of those people within two or three days are in the same crowd of people saying, crucify him, set the other guy free. Now, is that hypocrisy? I don't think so, but it's inconsistent. It's influence for sure, being impacted by the influence of others. I, I have this conviction that popular opinion is usually wrong. But that's just me. So now let's talk about what Jesus said about hypocrisy. A lot to do, but I'm just picking out a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. So he's talking about being seen. Now, is it wrong to pray in public? No. Is it wrong for people to hear you pray? Uh, No. But it's the motivation on the inside to be seen as something that Jesus was challenging they were not. And then he goes on in Matthew 15. You hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's a disconnect. So Jesus was saying, this is not just inconsistency. This is hypocrisy. That we're praying to be seen, but there's something off on the inside. There's something not discernible to the natural eye that we have to be aware of in our own pursuit of following Jesus. He says in Matthew chapter 7, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, I've been in ministry 40 years. I've never met one person who said, I took care of the log in my eye. That's why I'm criticizing you with the speck in yours. I'm doing just what Jesus said. Because the point is, it's about self-examination. That's what keeps us from being hypocritical, is looking in our soul. Self-examination, what do, how hypocritical am I? Where am I inconsistent? What do I need to be surrendering to him? You know, that we can easily misinterpret Scripture and not let it penetrate our soul. We know from the prophet Joel, he says, let the weak say I am strong. But he's not saying fake it till you make it. He's saying that it's in the process of uh, becoming strong. It's in the process of discovering strength by our faith. But we're not trying to say we're something we're not. So that's my introduction about hypocrisy to give us a few things to think about. Now, my last part of this message is going to be a vaccine for hypocrisy. Now, is this relevant or what? (laughs) I got my first vaccine, but it's not helping the hypocrisy part. This is what, but I'll talk about that. So how do we fix it? What do we do? And so One is so obvious, and it is the issue of integrity. Integrity is when we notice that what is incongruent in our lives so we can make our actions consistent with our words. 
It's why we pray, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations and the motivations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I'm not just doing this for people. I'm doing this for you. Lord, search my heart. Embracing personal integrity and rejecting compromises to our personal values is important for all of us to focus on. We have to prioritize fruit and outcomes in our life as a measure of our faith, not just the information we know, the knowledge we have. It's the fruit that we bear. And this pursuit of integrity is what helps address the character issues that might be in the church, might be in you and I, and might be in the world. Have you ever driven to or from church and got in a heated argument with the people you were riding with? Yeah, everybody, it seems like. I mean, you know, when you get to church, if you had a heated argument with the person you're driving with, your spouse or somebody, when you walk in, you don't feel real worshipy. You know, you don't go, oh, I've been waiting for this. You're just like trying to get what you're what is in your heart out and get what you're going to sing to match what's in your soul. But this kind of thing should be a challenge for us. You know, um, I am in a marriage that I would say is a high-maintenance marriage. That means my wife and I have to work hard all the time. And there's, at any given moment, a match can break out where we got to work on something. And so I'm telling you, uh, we wrote a book together, not really together, separately. We wrote it, chapters, and then had somebody put it together. But the reason we wrote it is because of what we learned in our failures, what we learned that wasn't working, called Love Works. And I have to be honest, there are times when I was supposed to speak on marriage and then I felt, I felt unqualified to speak on it or even disqualified to speak on it. I wanted to change the title of the book. Love works when you work the works or else love doesn't work. <laughs> but that's way too long. Integrity. Another vaccine to hypocrisy is humility. And listen to this. Living with integrity begins with humility. My teaching and ministry style for decades has been teaching truths from the scripture, but basically that I discovered by my own mistakes and errors and failures. So it's like you have no choice but just go, man, you have to be realistic. I face the same battles as you. I mean, I, I cannot preach the word and saying, hey, I got this together, do what I do. It's like, this is what I've learned. This is what I've discovered. I, I want you to discover it too, and, and we move through this together. And so when it comes to hypocrisy, we, we probably don't need to ask, am I hypocritical in any way? But we do need to ask, in what area am I a hypocrite? Or where, in what area is there hypocrisy in my life? You know, an honest self-evaluation 
or even self-awareness does not come natural to us. It's not easy. I mean, it's just, we have to be reminded, we have to continually, that's why the Bible says, humble yourself. We remind ourselves. When I started hearing about people with the coronavirus and the most vulnerable people are those that are 65 years old and older, I was like, I got to pray for these people. And I get started and I realize, wait, I'm one of those people. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, me. So being self-aware is, is a little bit of a journey. It's kind of funny what we do with humility and being humble. There used to be a thing I saw a lot more on on social media called a humble brag. And they may not call it that anymore, but I sure see it a lot. It was like, I'm so humbled to be with this very famous person. I'm like, really? Because if you were humble, I think you wouldn't even mention it. But maybe, why don't you just say, I sure love being hanging out with this influential guy or this famous singer or whatever. Just say, it was so fun and cool. It was great. But I'm not sure why we go with the humble thing. Because it kind of feels like it's not that humble. So I don't know if it's not that second nature to us. Integrity and humility. And so because of part of what hypocrisy is, is it gets confused with brokenness in our life. What I want to finish this message talking about is the brokenness that we all experience and how to be dealing with that So that doesn't become a source of our own hypocrisy. It's about the journey of soul health. Now, Jesus talked about hypocrisy and brought this up. And here's where. Matthew 23 and verse 25, this is what Jesus said. What sorrow awaits you teachers and religious of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup, first wash the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will become clean too. So what I'm understanding Jesus to say is that the inside work is crucial. And we have a tendency to put the appearance on the outside. How am I doing? How am I looking? Am I saying the right things? Am I doing it this way? And he said, don't forget the inside. Because if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will take care of itself. And so, to be honest, I've seen pastors. I've seen people in leadership. I've seen just good good believers in the Christian community look good on the outside. But on the inside, I know it's like a mugshot where there's oxygen missing, there's life missing, and we got to work on the soul to get healthy. There's a big focus of the outward appearance in our society, and we've made all these great advances on, I mean, you can get rid of wrinkles and dye, color your hair the right thing. You can look skinny. But listen, we're not trying to change our outward looks. Transformation is about changing how we think and believe and how the health of our soul, that changes the outside. So here's some of the lessons that I'm still learning about soul health. So when you think back on this message, when this message is over in seven minutes and 15 seconds, 
then I want you to think there's hypocrisy in the church, there's hypocrisy in the world, and some of hypocrisy is really brokenness that I need to work on. And so we start learning on this. And so one thing that I'm still learning is that pain is part of life's journey. And since pain is part of the journey of life, healing is also part of the journey. Both pain and healing. And I've always struggled with embracing the idea of pain as normal. Because to me, pain is a sign that I messed up or that you messed up or something went wrong or God wasn't paying attention or the devil got me. (laughs) And I'm sure all of those have happened at one time except for God always pays attention. But pain happens in our life. And we will either need to address the pain we've been carrying around for years or the new pain that came into our life through a current crisis. We are in a global pandemic. We're hopefully approaching the tail end of it. And so we have to ask, what have we learned about ourselves? What have we learned about life, faith during COVID? During the shutdowns, we could not draw on what we used to. We couldn't just jump in the car and go to a live worship service. We had to find new ways to draw on God's presence. Loss and pain and difficulties usually leaves a gift behind if we look for it. The gift is finding new ways to draw on the presence of God. So new, it, it, we have to learn how to draw on God's strength when God seems silent. I heard T.D. Jake say recently, the teacher talks through the whole class, but when the test comes, the teacher gets silent. So when you're tested with pain, you get to think about what you've learned. We will deal with fear and anxiety and grief in our life. If we focus on the hurt, we will continue to suffer. If we focus on the lesson, we'll continue to grow. If we learn from our pain, that pain becomes a tuition for a higher education. But if we don't learn from the pain, that pain is just a penalty we paid. So fear is real. To deny its existence is to deny humanity. And fear is sometimes a gift to us. It warns us when we're in danger. Make faith drive your life forward even when fear is sitting in the seat next to you. Because faith is strong. Fear is real. And we've got to deal with it. Anxiety is another big issue that, that is involved with the pain in our life. You know, sometimes we can know that God is with us, but still feel the sensations of fear and anxiety. This does not mean that we have a lack of faith or we're having a crisis of faith or that we're hypocritical. Sometimes for reasons beyond our understanding, these feelings can attack us or even torture us. The anxiety. One thing I know for sure, Jesus hurts when you hurt. 
I hope you feel his compassion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he endured levels of anxiety that you and I may never experience. His anxiety caused him to sweat drops of blood. So when we're going through those anxious times, know that he's not missing. He has compassion. He is there with us. We find new ways to draw on his strength. And then grief is this third part of this pain in life that we wrestle with. And grief is a demanding companion. In the early days and weeks and months after a loss, it's always there, not just below the surface, on the surface, simmering, lingering, festering. And then like a wave, grief can rise up and crash on us and like it's going to tear your heart right out. And in those moments, we feel like, I don't know if I can carry any more grief. It's like ordinary events become landmines and triggers. But even in the midst of it, God has the supernatural ability to help us thrive despite the grief and lead us to a place of healing. So I want to encourage you to don't give up. If you're facing fear today, you're facing anxiety, maybe wrestling with grief, this is part of the pain of life, but part of the healing of life is found as we draw upon the presence of God and know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He says, in, uh, he said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ because when I'm weak, I'm strong. Listen, when you're going through that painful moment and you feel so weak, know that that's when the strength of heaven is available to you. I have found so much courage knowing that that's the time when God says, I know you feel weak and you seem weak. Let me be strong for you. It drives me to a place of trusting him beyond some kind of articulate, impressive faith. It is often just a silent trust that I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next, but here's one thing I know. I can trust him. I'm in his hands. If there's one thing I think that the public looks at Christians and leans toward the hypocritical comment is because of the relationship with loving people or not. And the idea that we talk about a message of love and we talk about a loving God, but we don't seem to be very effective at communicating love to others in some people's view. There's a tension between compassion for groups of humanity and love for individuals and how we build relationship. And right now in America, we are so divided like never before. There is so much mentality and view of it's us and them. 
It's black versus brown versus white. It's Republican versus Democrat. It's pro this or anti that. We're so quick to judge. And the anti-hate groups disseminate just as much hate as the offenders that got them upset in the first place. And so we as believers have to have an understanding of how we can be loving and compassionate with people who think different than we do, who believe different than we do, who act different than we do. And we have to have that especially with each other. In the first couple of months of the pandemic, the New York Post put a story up where the because the restaurants closed down and weren't putting their garbage out in the alley, the rats turned on themselves and became cannibalistic. I know it's a little gross, but the pandemic drove these rats to start devouring themselves. And the thought is, under pressure, human beings can begin devouring one another in the same way. So that has to be a value that we embrace and that we pursue is loving people and showing compassion. And whether we agree or whether we would do the same thing in the same situation is not the issue, but that we love and that we represent Christ to them. And it brings us to a place where we're challenged in our own personal individual relationships and um, how we navigate hurts when we're talking about pain, people are so usually involved with it. And so we find ourselves stuck between loving people and trusting people. And this is where God can take us to a place of healing and discernment that we, we learn to be wise with people. We can love them and listen and understand them, but also learn how to trust with discernment so they're not... When you trust somebody, you're giving them access to your soul. And that might be one of the things that we have to spend some more time talking about and learning about is how to navigate trust and still love people. But I hope that when you think about this message, you're reminded about just some of your own integrity, your own humility, and working through the hurts in your soul so that we don't find ourselves living in that hypocritical zone. And uh, I want to pray for you in closing that God will take you through any difficult moment that you may be in now, whatever Gethsemane moment you might be experiencing, then take you from the place of anxiety and pain and fear to a place of healing in a place of strength where you learn the message from heaven for your life in this, in this day and in this moment. God, I thank you for sending Jesus who among us who could feel our pain, who could love us, who could understand the same fears and anxieties that would come against people. And I thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. And right now I pray for every person listening to this message. I pray that you would give comfort to their soul, that you would give hope, that they would see a future with hope because of you. 
because of your love and for your grace. And I pray that you would send us to others to genuinely love them in a way that honors you. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.